to Tragic Reader, where I don't read tragedies, but I read tragically. Okay, so it's obviously been quite some time uh, since the last read, but yeah, a lot's been going on in the world and in my life. Like, I feel like I've said on an episode before that mental health is incredibly important to me and I've had kind of a rough time. Not kind of, I've had a rough time. So, now that I'm feeling (laughs) extantially, I don't even know how to say the word right, but exceptionally better, I guess, now that I'm feeling exceptionally better and not so much on Struggle Street as I was before, um, yeah, I can kind of resume some of my normal enjoyed activities, such as reading terribly to you guys. So, welcome to the, what is this? chapter four recap Uh, so I can I honestly am not sure I even remember what happened in chapter four simply because it's been such a long time since I've even looked at this story as I said before in the welcome back message that it's just it's been quite some time so yeah, um, what do I remember? I remember that Gulliver, he got, well, he saved the princess. I'm not sure if that was in chapter four, but I remember he saved the princess or whoever she was. And he got like a room and he was supposed to meet the king for breakfast, but no one woke him up and told him. The servant who was supposed to tell him, I think, was just kind of like, yo, the walk was far. I just wasn't about that life. Mm-mm. And honestly, I feel that. And then I think um, on, and I'm not really, I honestly don't know how to say that name still, but we'll go with Anne. Uh, took Gulliver to a bar or like a warehouse is in my head. It's a warehouse where they have all of their alcohol. And he drinks some amazing emotional thing. Yeah, so that's that's my recap. That's what I recall. I probably could have gone and listened to the actual episode. But you know, not about that life right now either. So, without any more adus, I'm going to read chapter five. When I woke, feeling as refreshed as though I had been dreaming through a long night, Anne, seeing me open-eyed, helped me to my feet, and when I had recovered my senses a little, asked if we should go on. I was myself again by this time, so willingly took her hand, and soon came out of the tangle into the open spaces. I must have been under the spell of the Martian wine longer than it had seemed, for already it was late in the afternoon. The shadows of trees were lying deep and far-reaching over the motley crowds of people. Out here as the day wand and they had developed some sort of method in their sports. In front of us was a broad grassy course marked off with garland finger posts. 
and in the space rallies of war folk were taking part in all manner of games under the eyes of great concourse of spectators, doing the Martians' pleasures for them as they did their labors. Anne led me gently on, leaning on my arm heavier, I thought, than she had done in the morning. And ever and anon, turning her gazelle-like eyes upon me, with a look that I could not understand. As we sauntered forward, I noticed all about lesser circles where the yellow-girded ones were drawing delighted laughter from good-tempered crowds by tricks of sleight of hand, and posturing, or tossing gilded cups and balls as though they were catering, as in they, as indeed they were, for outgrown children. Others fluted or sang songs in course to the slow clapping ha- clapping of hands, while others were doing I knew not what, sitting silent among silent spectators, who every now and then burst out laughing for no cause that I could see. But Anne would not let me stop, and so we pushed on through the crowd till we came to the main enclosures, where a dozen slaves had run a race for the amusement of those too lazy to race themselves and were sitting panting on the grass. To give them time to get their breath, perhaps, a man stepped out of the crowd dressed in a dark blue tunic, a strange, vacious-looking fellow, and throwing down a sheaf of javelins, marched off a dozen paces. Then, facing round, called out loudly he would give sixteen suits of summer cloth to anyone who could prick him with a javelin from the heap. Why? I said in amazement. This is the best of fools. No one could miss from such a distance. Aye, but, replied my guide, he is a gifted one, versed in mystics. I was going to say a good javelin, sawed with iron, was a stronger argument than any mystic I had ever heard of could stand. When out of the crowd stepped a youth, and amid the derisive cheers of his friends, chose a reed from the bundle. He poised it in his hand a minute to get the middle, then turned on the living target. Whatever else they might be, these Martians were certainly beautiful as the daytime. Never had I seen such a perfect embodiment of grace and elegance as that boy as he stood there for a moment, poised to the throw. The afternoon sunshine warm and strong in his bunched brown hair, a girlish flush of shyness on his handsome face, and the sleek perfection of his limbs, clear-cut against the dusky background beyond. And now the javelin was going. Surely the mystic would think better of it at the last moment. No, the initiate held his ground with tight-shut lips and retrospective eyes. And even as I looked, the weapon flew upon his errand. There goes the soul of a fool, I exclaimed. And as the words were uttered, the spear struck, or seemed to, between the neck and shoulder. But instead of piercing, rose high into the air, quivering and flashing, and presently turning over, fell back and plunged deep into the turf, while a lower murmur of indifferent pleasures went round amongst the onlookers. The rat, Anne, yawning gently, looked to me and said, A strong-willed fellow, isn't he, friend? I hesitated a minute and then asked, was it Will which turned that shaft? She answered with simplicity. Why, of course. What else? By this time, another boy had stepped out and, having chosen a javelin, tested it with hand and foot. Then, retiring a pace or two, rushed up to the throwing mark and flung it straight and true into the bared bosom of the man. And as though it had struck a wall of brass, the shaft Left ba- leapt back, falling, quivering at the thrower's feet, 
another and another tried unsuccessfully, until at last, vexed at their futility, futility, I said, I have a somewhat scanty wardrobe that would be all the better for that fellow's summer suiting by your leave. I will venture a throw against him. It is useless, answered Anne. None but one knows more magic than he, or is especially befriended by the fates can touch him through the envelope he has put on. The what? Still, I think I'll try. It is hopeless. I would not willingly see you fail, whispered the girl with a sudden show of friendship. And what, I said, bending down, would you give me if I succeeded? Whereat Anne laughed a little uneasily, and, withdrawing her hand from mine, half turned away. So I pushed through the spectators. <laughs> oh, snap. I pushed through the spectators and stepped into the ring. I went straight up to the pile of weapons, and having chosen one, went over to the mystic. Good fellow, I cried out ostentatiously, trying the sharpness of the javelin point with my finger. Where are all of those sixteen summer suits of yours lying hid? It matters nothing, said the man, as if he were asleep. Ay, but by the stars it does, for it will vex the quiet repose of your soul tomorrow, if your heir should wear, should swear they could not find them. It matters nothing, muttered the will-wrapped visionary. It will matter something if I take you at your word. Come, friend Purple Jerkin, will you take the council with your legs and run while there is yet time? (laughs) Sorry, our stand-up to be thrown at. First of all, Gulliver's out here talking shit. Uh, I hope he loses. He better lose. I stand here immovable in the confidence of my initiation. Then, by thunder, I will initiate you into the mysteries of a javelin <sighs> of a javelin inn, and your blood be on your head. The Martians were all craning their necks in hushed eagerness as I turned to the casting place and, poising the javelin, faced the magician. Would he run at the last moment? I half hoped so. For a minute, I gave him the chance. Then, as he showed no sign of wavering, I drew back my hand shook the javelin back till it bent like a reed and hurled it at him. The Martian's head turned as though all on one pivot as the spear sped through the air, expecting no doubt to see it recoil as others had done. But it took him full in the center of his chest, and with a wild wave of arms and a flutter of purple raiment sent him backwards and down, and over and over in a shapeless heap of limbs and flying raiment, while a low murmur, low murmur of odd surprise rose from the spectators of freaking course. They crowded round him in a dense ring as Anne came flitting to me with a startled face. Oh, stranger, she burst out. You have surely killed him. But more astounded, I had broken down his guard than grieved at his injury. No, I answered smilingly. A sore chest he may have tomorrow, but dead he is not, for I turned the lance point back as I spun it. And it was the butt end I threw at him. It was none the less wonderful. I thought you were a common man. A prince may have it, but come from over the hills. But now something tells me you are more than that. And she lapsed into thoughtful silence for a time. (laughs) Neither of us were wistful to go back amongst those who were raising their bruised magician to his legs but wandered away instead through the deepening twilight towards the city over meadows whose damp, soft fragrance loaded the air with sleepy pleasure. Neither of us saying a word till the dusk deepened and the quick night descended while we came amongst the garden houses, 
the thousand lights of an unreal city rising like a jeweled bank before us. And there Anne said she would leave me for a time, meeting me again in the palace square later on, to see Princess Heru read the destinies of the year. What? I exclaimed. More magic? I have been brought up on more substantial mental stuff than this. Nevertheless, I would advise you to come to the square, persisted my companion. It affects us all, and who knows, may affect you more than any. First of all, I want Gulliver to go the hell home because nobody asked you about your substantial mental shit sir mm. therein poor Anne was unconsciously wearing the cloak of prophecy herself and shrugging my shoulders good humoredly I kissed her chin little realizing as I let her fingers slip from mine that I should see her no more <gasps> no what happened to that I don't like it I don't like it at all turning back alone through the city through ways twinkling with myriad lights as little lamps begin to blink out amongst garlands and flower-decked booths on every hand, I walked on, lost in varying thoughts until fairly tired and hungry I found myself outside a stall where many Martians stood eating and drinking to their heart's content. I was known to none of them and, forgetting past experience, was looking on rather enviously where there came a touch upon my arm and, are you hungry, sir? asked a bystander. Aye, I said, hungry, good friend, and with all the zest with an empty purse lends to that condition. Then here is what you need, sir. Even from here the wine smells good, and the fried fruit would make a mouse's eye twinkle. Why do you wait? Why wait? Why, because though the rich man's dinner goes in at, goes in at his mouth, the poor man must often be content to dine through his nose. I tell you I have nothing to get me a meal with. The stranger seemed to speculate on this for a time, and then he said, I cannot fathom your meaning, sir. Buying and selling, gold and money, all these have no meaning to me. Surely the twin blessings of an appetite and food abundant, ready and free before you are enough. What? Free, is it? Free like the breakfast served out this morning? Why, of course, said the youth with, with mild depreciation. Everything here is free. Everything is his who will take it, without exception. What else is the good of a coherent society and a government if it cannot provide you with so rudimentary a thing as a meal? Okay, I feel attacked. As an American, I feel so very attacked. And I'm moving. I'm moving to Mars. So, there's that. Alright. Whereat, joyfully, I ended my belt. And without nicely examining the argument, marched into the booth and there put Martian hospitality to the test, eating and drinking, but this time with growing wisdom, till I was a new man, and then paying my leaving with a wave of the hand to the yellow-girded one who dispensed the common provender, I sauntered on again, caring little or nothing which way the road went, and soon across the current of my meditations a peal of laughter broke, accompanied by the piping of a flute somewhere close at hand, and the next minute I found myself amid a ring of light, Amid a ring of light-hearted royesters who were linking hands for a dance to the music a curly-headed fellow was making close by. They made me join them. <laughs> One rosy-faced damsel at the hither end of the chain drew up to me and, without a word, slipped her soft baby fingers into my hand. On the other side, another came with melting eyes 
breath like a bed of violets, and banked up fun puckering her dainty mouth. Banked up fun. I don't know what that means, y'all. What could I do but give her a hand as well? The flute began to gurgle anew, like a drinking spout in springtime, and away we went, faster and faster, faster each minute. The boys and girls swinging themselves in time to the tune, and capering presently till their tender feet were twinkling over the ground in gay confusion. Faster and faster till, as the infection of the dance spread even to the outside groups, I capered too. My word, if they could have seen me that night from the deck of the old Carolina, how they would have laughed, sword singing, coattail swinging, coattails flying, faster and faster, round and round we went, till limbs could stand no more. The gasping piper blew himself quite out, and the dance ended as abruptly as it commenced. The dancers melting away to join others or casting themselves panting on the turf. Certainly these Martian girls were blessed with an ingratiatingly simplicity. My new friend of the violet-scented breath hung back a little. Then after looking at me demurely for a minute or two, like a child that chooses a new playmate, came softly up and standing on tiptoe, kissed me on the cheek. It was not unpleasant, so I turned the other. Whereon, guessing my meaning, without the smallest hesitation, she reached up again and pressed her pretty mouth to my bronze skin a second time. Then, with a little sigh of satisfaction, she ran an arm through mine, saying, Comrade, from what country have you come? I never saw one quite like you before. From what country had I come? Again, the frown dropped down upon my forehead. Was I dreaming? Was I mad? Where indeed had I come from? I stared back over my shoulder. And there, as if in answer to my thought, there were the black tracery of flowering shrub waved in the soft night wind over a gap in the crumbling ivory ramparts. The sky was brightening. As I looked into the center of that glow, a planet, magnified by the wonderful air, came swinging up, pale but splendid and mapped by soft colors, green, violet, and red. I knew it on the minute. Heaven only knows how, but I knew it and a desperate thrill of loneliness swept over me, a spasm of comprehension of the horrible void dividing us. Never did yearning babe, babe, never did yearning babe stretch across more wistfully to an unattainable mother than I at the moment to my mother earth. All her meanness and pro, proseness, proseseness, so, P-R-O-S-A-I-C-N-E-S-S, don't know what that word is, was forgotten. All her imperfections and shortcomings. It was home, the one tangible thing, and the glittering emptiness of the spheres. All my soul went into my eyes, and then I sneezed violently, and turning around found that sweet damsel, whose silky head nestled so friendly on my shoulder, was tickling my nose with a feather she had picked up with the feather. <laughs> but like, girl, I'm trying to, mm, I'm trying to have a minute here with Earth. You tickling my nose. Woman-like, she had forgotten all about her first question. For what? And now asked another. Will you come to supper with me, stranger? Tears, tis, tis nearly ready, I think. Did he say woman-like? Like, she forgot because she was a woman? Like, that was... The reason she forgot. Disrespectful. Gulliver is disrespectful as hell. To be able to say no to such an invitation, lady, is the first thing a young man should learn. 
I answered lightly, but then, seeing there was nothing save the most innocent friendliness in those hazel eyes, I went on. But the stern rule may admit of variance. Only as it chances, I have just supped at the public expense. F, instead, you would be a sailor's sweetheart for an hour, and take me to the show of yours, your princess's benefit, or whatever it is. I shall be obliged. My previous guide is hull down over the horizon, and I am clean out of my reckoning in this crowd. By way of reply, the little lady, light as an elf, took me by the fingertips, and gleefully skip skipping forward, piloted me through the mazes of her city, until we came out into the great square fronting on the palace, which rose beyond it like a white chalk cliff in the dull light. Not a taper showed anywhere around in circumference, but a mysterious kind of radiance, like a sea phosphorence, beamed from the palace porch. All was in such a death-like silence that the nails in my ammunition boots made an unpleasant clinking as they struck on the marble pavement. Yet, by uncertain starlight, I saw, to my surprise, the whole square was thronged with Martians, all facing towards the porch, as still graven images as, and as voiceless for once as though they had indeed been marble. It was strange to see them sitting there in the twilight, waiting for I knew not what, and my friend's voice at my elbow almost startled me as she said in a whisper, The princess knows you are in the crowd and desires you to go up upon the steps near where she will be. Who brought her message? I asked, gazing vaguely round, for none had spoken to us for an hour or more. No one, said my companion, gently pushing me up and open gently pushing me up an open way towards the palace steps left clear by the sitting Martians. It came direct from her to me this minute. But how? I persisted. Nay, said the girl, if we stop to talk like this, we shall not be placed before she comes, and thus throw a whole year's knowledge out. So bottling my speculations, I allowed myself to be led up the first flight of worn white steps to where, on the terrace between them and the next flight leading directly to the palace portico, was a flat having a circle about 20 feet across, inlaid upon the marble with a darker colored blocks. Inside that circle, as I sat down close by in, close by in, close by it in the twilight, showed another circle, and then a final one in whose inmost middle stood a tall iron tripod and something atop of it covered by a cloth. And all around the outer circle were magic symbols. I started as I recognized the meaning of some of them. Within these, again, the inner circle held what looked like the representation of planets. Ending, as I have said, in that dished hollow made by the countless dancers' feet and its solitary tripod. Back again, I glanced toward the square where the great concourse, ten thousands of them, perhaps, were sitting mute and silent in the deepening shadows. Then back to the magic circles, till the silence and expectancy of a strange scene began to possess me. Shadow down below, star dusted heaven above, and not a figure moving when suddenly something like a long-drawn sigh came from the lips of the expectant multitude, and I was aware every eye had suddenly turned back to the palace porch, where, as we looked, a figure wrapped in pale blue robes appeared and stood for a minute, 
then stole down the steps with an eagerness in every movement, movement, holding us spellbound. I have seen many splendid pageants and many sights, each of which might be the talk of a lifetime, but somehow nothing ever so engrossing, so thrilling as that ghostly figure in flowing robes stealing across the pizarra, almost said pizzeria, mm. Pizarra in starlight and silence, the princess of a broken kingdom, the priestess of a forgotten faith coming to her station to perform a jugglery of which she knew not even the meaning. Jugglery? <laughs> it was my versatile friend Heru, and with quick, incisive steps, her whole frame ambent from the time with the fervor of her mission. Ambent? Ambent for the time with the fever of her mission, she came swiftly down to within a dozen yards of where I stood. Heru, indeed, but not the same princess as in the morning, an inspired priestess rather, her slim body wrapped in blue and quivering with emotion, her face ashine with Delphic fire, her hair loose, her feet bare, until at last when, as she stood within the limit of the magic circle, her white hands upon her breast, her eyes flashing like planets themselves in the starshine. She looked so ghostly and, un and unreal, I felt for a minute I was dreaming. Then began a strange, weird dance amongst the imagery of the rings, over which my earth planet was beginning to throw a haze of light. At first it was hardly more than a walk, a slow procession round the twin circumferences at the center tripod, but soon it increased to an extraordinary graceful measure, a cadent step without music or sound that riveted my eyes to the dancer. Presently I saw those mystic twinkling feet of hers, as the dance became swifter, were performing a measured round amongst the planet signs, spelling out something, I knew not what, with quick light touch amongst the zodiac figures, dancing out a soundless invocation of some kind as a dumb man might spell a message by touching letters. Quicker and quicker, for a minute after minute grew the dance, Swifter and swifter the swing of the light blue drapery as the priestess, with eager face and staring eyes, swung panting round upon her orbit, and redder and redder over the city tops rose the circumference of the earth. It seemed to me all the silent multitude were breathing heavily as we watched the giddy dance, and whatever they felt, all my own senses seemed to be winding up upon the revolving figure as thread winds on a spindle. When will she stop? I whispered to my friend under my breath, when the earth star rests in the roof niche of the temple is climbing, she answered back, and then, oh, the tripod is a globe of water, in it she will see the destiny of the year, and will tell us, the whiter the water stays, the better for us, it never varies from white, but we must not talk, see, she is stopping. And as I looked back, the dance was certainly ebbing now, with such smoothly decreasing undulations that every heart began to beat calmer in response. There was a minute or two of such slow cessation, and then to say she stopped were too gross a description. Motion rather died away from her, and the priestess grounded as smoothly as a ship grounds in fine weather on a sandy bank. There she was at last, crouched behind the tripod, one corner of the cloth covering its grasp in her hand and her eyes fixed on the shining round just poised up on the distant run. Keenly, the girl watched it slide into the zenith, 
Then, then the cloth was snatched from the tripod. As it fell, it uncovered a beautiful and perfect globe of clear white glass, a foot or so in diameter, and obviously filled with the thinnest, most limpid water imaginable. At first it seemed to me, who stood near to the priestess of Mars, with that beaming sphere directly between us and the newly risen world, that its smooth and flawless face was absolutely devoid of sign or coloring. Then, as the distant planet became stronger in the magnifying Martian air, or my eyes better accustomed to the sudden nucleus of brilliancy, a delicate and infinitely lovely network of colors came upon it. They were like the radiant prisms that sometimes flush the surface of a bubble more than aught else for a time. But as I watched that mosaic of yellow and purple creep softly to and fro upon the globe, it seemed they slowly took form and meaning. Another minute or two when they had certainly congealed into a settled plan, and then, as I stared and wondered, it burst upon me in a minute that I was looking upon a picture, faithful in every detail, of the world I stood on, all its ruddy forests, its sapphire sea, both broad and narrow ones, its white-peaked mountains and unnumbered islands being mapped out with a startling clearness for a spell upon the beaming orb. Then a strange thing happened. Heru, who had been crouching in a tremulous heap by the tripod, rose stealthily and passed her hand a few times across the sphere. Color and picture vanished at her touch like breath from a mirror. Again, all was clear and pellucid. Now, said my companion, now listen, for Howard reads the destiny. The wider the globe stays, the better for us. And then I felt her hand tighten on mine, with a startled grasp as the words died away from her lips. Even as the girl spoke, the sphere, which had been beaming in the center of the silent square like a mighty white jewel, began to flush with angry red. Redder and redder grew the gleam, a fiery glow, which seemed curdling in the interior of the round as though it were filled with flame. Redder and redder until the princess staring into it seemed turned against the jet black night behind into a form of molten meadow. metal. A spasm of terror passed across her as she stared. Her limbs stiffened. Her frightened hands were clutched in front, and she stood cowering under the great crimson nucleus-like one barrette of power and life, and lost to every sense but that of agony. Not a syllable came from her lips, not a, movement, not a movement stirred her body, only that dumb, stupid stare of horror, and at something she saw on the globe. What could I do? I could not sit and see her soul come out at her frightened eyes, and not a Martian moved a finger to her rescue. The red shine gleamed on empty faces, tear above tear and flung its broad flush over the endless rank of open-mouthed spectators. Then back I looked to Heru, that winsome little lady for whom you will remember had already more than a passing fancy, and saw with a thrill of emotion that while she still kept her eyes on the flaming globe, like one in the horrible dream, her hands were slowly, very slowly, rising in supplication to me. It was not vanity. There was no mistaking the direction of that silent imperial imploring appeal silent imploring appeal not a man of her countrymen moved not even black half there was not a sound in the world it seemed but the noisy clatter of my own shoe nails on the marble flags in the great red eye of that unholy globe the martians glimmered like a picture multitude under the red cliff of their ruined palace i glared round at them with contempt for a minute then sprang forward and snatched the princess up it was like pulling a flower up by the roots, 
She was stiff and stark when I lay hold of her, but when I tore her from the magic ground, she suddenly gave a piercing shriek and fainted in my arms. Then, as I turned upon my heels with her upon my breast, my foot caught upon the cloth still wound about the tripod of the sphere, over went the implement of a thousand years of sorcery, and out went the red fire. But little I cared. The princess was safe, and up the palace steps, amidst the low, welling hum of consternation from the recovering Martians, I bore that bundle of limp and senseless loveliness up into the pale shine of her own porch, and there, laying her down upon a couch, watched her recover presently amongst her women, with a varied assortment of emotions tingling in my veins. Oh, here we go. Mm, Gulliver, Gulliver, Gulliver. I already fucking shut up in Mars. Mm, mm, mm. Alright, so that was chapter five. Um, yeah, some interesting things have happened. <sighs> Gulliver. And man, he really just seems like he's really about to seriously fuck some shit up on Mars. Because Mars seems wonderful and he kind of gets on my nerves. So I'm just automatically assuming that he's not really going to save anything. He's just there to mess stuff up. So hopefully I'm wrong. Hopefully he turns out to just be like wonderful and not like just destroying the whole Mars chill vibe. <sighs> but we will see. We will see. Anyway, thank you for reading with me. And, well, yeah, that's pretty much. Thank you.